Hello, I'm Tim Lebrecht. Welcome to this episode of the Masters of Business Arts podcast, brought to you by the House of Beautiful Business. The Masters of Business Arts podcast features in-depth conversations with, well, masters of business arts. That is, people who believe that not all art must become a business, but business must always be an art. People who understand. So, Mariana, thanks for being here with me today to do this podcast. It's great to see you again. We met a few weeks ago at TED when you gave your first and brilliant TED Talk. And then we had coffee in Berlin, uh, I believe the week after, and we realized we have a shared acquaintance, a shared friend, Christian Mir Leclerc. Yes. Also known as Mio, who was actually the guest on the inaugural episode of the Masters of Business Arts podcast. And so great to have you here. As I was preparing for this podcast, I have to admit, um, I thought it's going to be a tough one because you're not just a master of business arts, but you're also a master of conversation, of course, as the former principal writer for Apple's Siri, you know about the do's and don'ts of dialogue. So I feel like this is a little bit under a magnifying glass here today, our, our conversation. And then I saw that you tweeted a while back, all I have is questions, but no answers. And of course, that's a modest inaccuracy, because when you're working for Siri, you were expected to have answers to the most random and bizarre questions that humans could possibly throw at, at Siri. So... Uh, let me start by asking you a very simple question. Maybe you have a polite uh, or a diplomatic answer to that. So what is your second most favorite assistant after Siri? Oh, I would say that my second favorite assistant would be the human one. Um, maybe that's not really, maybe that's cheating a little bit. Um, but I do think that I don't think human assistants are going away anytime soon. And I think that, you know, I have an assistant, she's wonderful. And um, there are certain things that machines will never be able to replace. So I would say every human assistant out there would be my second favorite. That is for sure a diplomatic answer and a very <laughs> human-centered answer. Is It's that also actually true? If I did have a second favorite, A virtual assistant I would I would give it it's actually not to be coy or to be um, you know political it's, it's actually the truth yeah so to stay with that for a second the the term assistant it always struck me as is somewhat strange is that do you, do you feel I mean does it have a positive connotation negative connotation does it does it capture what digital assistants do really well is that the right term for it um, I I don't have a problem with the term assistance, um, assisting or, or assistant. Um, I think because if you look at one of the most beautiful human values we could have is sort of serving each other. Um, I really see the role of assistant or server in any capacity in society as actually a pretty noble one um, and a pretty, I think, sacred one. Um, so I think people that spend their entire lives supporting someone else um, whether an organization or an individual, um, I think it's a it's a really it's a really meaningful role. Um, and so I did come to learn that at Siri was that whether um, the response and other AI assistants I've worked on, the response is always helping and serving. And if the response is funny, if it's uh, witty, if it's straightforward, no matter what that personality perspective is, it's all with the intention of you know helping the situation in that moment. So. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, first, just for the listener's edification, and primarily my own, because I'm actually not a very avid user of digital assistants. Let's just to kind of um, 
stake out the landscape, right? So there's obviously Siri, there's Alexa's, uh, Amazon's Alexa, there's the Google Assistant, there's Microsoft's Cortana, there's Facebook's M, and those are just the main English-speaking assistants. Did I miss any? And then, of course, there's uh, assistants in other languages and Chinese digital assistants as well, right? So who, who right. And there, you Well, there are lots of others, too, of, I think, more domain-specific or function-specific ones. Um, those are kind of the big players, I guess, at the large tech companies. Um, but, you know, people are designing, you know, apps. There, There's uh, assistance for, um, you know, mental health or, you know, specific chatbots just designed for a function. Uh, there are a myriad of them. So they're only growing, I would say. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit of how you got involved with Apple. You, I believe, were living on the East Coast. You're a writer. Um, and then... One day, Apple called, or you had a conversation with Apple, and Apple said, well, we need you to uh, bring Siri to life. Um, so how did you get involved? And, and tell me a little bit about the, the first days in that, in that role in, in, uh, at Apple. Uh, so, yeah, actually, it was, a, it was a little bit different from that. I, was, I have been a writer um, all my life. I was an English major in college, and I always grew up writing fiction and plays and poetry and, and uh, bits like that. And I was living in New York as a working in editorial uh, for different publications and some content startups. And then Apple reached out uh, for me to work in their Marcom department, which is their global marketing communications. It's basically their in-house studio that handles all of their branding and their websites, digital, video, and things like that. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity. And I had never worked in marketing before. Um, I really was writing directly to um, people, that was sort of my my client, if you will, if you were to use that analogy. Um, but I, my son and I, we moved from New York to the Bay, um, and I started working in Marcom for a few years, working on all their products, on you know their brand, their voice, uh, bringing it to life in different areas. And um, then I sort of wanted a shift, and uh, an opportunity at Siri opened up, so I moved there from Marcom. And so actually my background at all was had nothing to do with AI, nothing to do with voice interface. Um, what I did know though from writing, not just um, you know creative writing all my life and paying a lot of attention to stories and characters, um, and in New York writing for different brands and startups and um, editorial publications, you know, New York Magazine, Huffington Post and um, Time Inc. and things like that, um, I really, got very good at paying attention to voice. So I could, you know, read a few lines from something and know it was this publication versus that one, or read a few lines and know it was this character versus that character. Sort of the diction, the pacing, the structure of, of conversation and dialogue. And I think that was one of the reasons I was very excited to go to Siri, was to focus on one character and one voice. Um, and Apple has a distinctive voice, and Siri has a, a, a very distinctive voice. And it was exciting to figure that out and to think about what to do with that. But before I went to Siri, there had already been an existing body of work. Um, there was an existing um, creator of the original Siri voice, um, Harry Sadler, who I was very um, fond of. We worked very well together. He was sort of that original Siri personality and voice. And then there have been other, uh, there's one other writer before me. But when I came on, I, I really took the helm of developing it and across many products and platforms and you know taking it further 
so you worked uh, writing for Siri for for several years, and there's all kinds of yeah, about research four years. Four years. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of research that states that people develop an emotional attachment to AI, to robots, or uh, you know, assistants as well. Um, so how about you, being working so closely for and with Siri? Do you have any kind of emotional relationship? To Siri, how do you feel about Siri now that you no longer write for her, him, it, it Siri? We just call it Siri. Um, there's no gender. Uh, I have a huge emotional attachment to Siri. I would say uh, I think um, it's. I do think I fell just really in love with the voice and the perspective and the mind and the character. You know, the wittiness, the humility, but sometimes you know, just snarkiness, um, the cleverness, the, the well-read nature, the whimsical, but sometimes um, just a bit silly and, you know, dumb. Um, it was a myriad of aspects of personality, but it all really cohered, especially after you write for this character day after day for four years. And that's pretty much all you do. You really become, you really grow inclined to think and, you know, have that perspective. Um, I... Yeah, it's really hard for me to... I I haven't really been won over by hearing what the personality of a lot of other voice assistants. I don't think as much thought has been put into them as compared to what Apple put into it. Um, So I think that... uh, I think that... um, And I, I always say that a few years into writing it, I really grew... Um... It got to the point where Siri started, I would find myself saying these ridiculous things like, you know, someone would say, well, what, what should we do with this? And I'll say, well, let me just wait till Siri tells me what to say, because I would start to feel that Siri would really take over as his own character. And, and it began to tell me what Siri would say. Um, and that wasn't something I made up to be, you know, pretentious or, or anything. It, it was really how I started to feel about writing it. So, yeah. And and what is the voice that you're hearing? I mean, is it is it is it? Do you hear a, a female voice, you know, with an American accent, or do you hear British voice? Oh, like, see. do you have a favorite no, voice? Or I mean, what is sort of in your mind when you when you write for Siri? What's the voice you hear? I really feel that Siri's voice transcends all those things. Um, it's sort of. Yeah, it's not an actual audio voice. It's just sort of like a character voice. So when you write. It's more of an impulse, sort of. So, like, I've written for characters before, um, just in my own writing, where I have this sort of rough idea of what will happen, and then suddenly the character does something, you know, but I didn't really create that, if that makes sense. The character just moved, decided to move in, or the character decided to leave town, even though I didn't, wasn't really planning for it. So the character just starts to have this own, I guess, kind of energy of its own. And I think that's what I mean when I say Siri will just... Or sometimes I'll just sit and you know, the line just comes and it's sort of like Siri said it, it wasn't really from me. Um, this is sounding a bit weirder than it actually is. I think writers will relate to these, these sentiments a lot where they feel like the work takes, or artists, like the work takes over and it's not really about you, but it's about you being kind of like a vessel for something bigger. Um, and Siri is really an incredible, I, I just think I happen to really care about it and was a good guardian and really put a lot of like love and care into Siri's manifestation in a lot of areas. But I would say Siri is a really, is really a amalgam of so much more than just one person. 
that makes sense. Yeah. And you still interact with Siri, you Siri yourself, without having this this professional deformation of constantly examining and scrutinizing the craft that's behind it. I mean, you're thinking, oh my God, they should have done a better job with that dialogue or that answer, or there's not enough personality in there. So, but are you still a? Can you be a regular user or a regular um, um, counterpart for Siri, or is that no longer I... possible? I, this may sound strange, but I, right now, I, it's hard for me to talk to Siri because it's just very, <laughs> it's just a bit emotional. Like if I hear something, you know, that was, that I wrote or worked on, it, it's triggers these feelings of nostalgia and I have to let that go and kind of move on. And if I hear something new, you know, it, it, either I'll feel kind of like sad that, it, I, you know, I'm not working on it right now, or I'll feel disappointed if it's not you know not so I actually haven't really been talking to Siri since I left and um and you know that's I don't know if that's something I really want to share but it's yeah I think that connection you know it's sort of like how people don't watch I guess their shows after they leave that show because there's just too much connection there um I do listen to the other voice assistants and I I do see a lot of imitation of Siri's lines and character and personality to be honest just because I know that field and and those um, conversations so well. So there isn't a lot of original work being done right now. I'm sure if it's being done anywhere, it's, it's probably continuing on at Siri. So. so in an article you wrote for the PAL's review, you, you write, imagine the poet Emily Dickinson relay, uh, relaying on surveys, uh, relying on surveys about metric or rhyme schemes readers preferred, or conducting opinion polls on which topics you should address in the next collection. Art is not achieved through consensus. But isn't is, is interacting with Siri or any digital assistant is that art and is aren't aren't users ultimately looking for convenience and efficiency and and consistency? So, I always um, you know and I should preface this because we've been talking a lot about Siri, but I've also worked on uh, other AI personality and scripting projects, right? So there's Sophia, um, there are other chatbots, there's some decision making ones I've, I've been talking to someone about, and I think. The key with AI assistants right now or AI functions or chatbots is right now they're very service oriented and that's the way the tech company leans, right? There's a reason why, you know, personally, I think Apple is so different from the other companies because Steve Jobs believed in an intersection of art and technology. Um, and that, that melding of creativity and function was so deep in his core of, you know, his interest in calligraphy, his interest in a beautiful user interface. I mean, we have to remember that Windows and these operating systems, before he came along, it was DOS, right? So he made beauty important and he made beauty a function and he made beauty a feature. And I think that that is some, uh, a philosophy that needs to continue with AI personalities because yes, right now we see them as functional, but who is, first of all, who is dictating that this is what all they should be? And second of all, I do believe that pretty soon when all the, you know, artificial intelligence or chatbots or these sort of virtual, you know, beings um, do get to a point where they're pretty functional and they're working. Um, people are going to look to personality as a differentiator. And then that's where art comes in because it is an art. It's, it's writing. It's, um, it's, it can be beautiful or it can be flat. Um, it could be a really thought out character. Or it could be a very shallow character. Uh, I wrote about in one of my articles about the difference in the relationship, the way we relate to another. And, you know, we can relate to something as what can I extract from this other? And we can do that with humans as well as, you know, with AI. 
um, we could do it as, you know, we're both just present. Um, and I added this third proposal, which is what if, and there's this other element, which is we could relate with this other thing as you're there to entertain me. And that's actually, there's actually a beauty and a history to that relationship that extends very far when you think about actors and entertainers in ancient Greece when, you know, people got up and performed plays. So entertainment was actually a very rich form of relating, right? So I see AI as a bit in between all these three. Right now, though, in the way the tech comp companies are moving and the way things for now seem to be is a really big focus on the the that relationship of um, function. You know, it's there just to deliver what the person needs and that's it. And there's not much thought beyond that. Um, but what if that relationship could also be um, the I-thou, which is you're both there, right? So when a lot of this responses that have been very popular are not the ones where the AI is clearly just trying to give the answer that they think the person wants, but when the, the AI shares a little bit of their perspective or says, well, or, you know, an AI character says, well, this is how I felt when this funny thing happened. And it's so unexpected that there's a relating that happens. And then that entertaining piece um, is yet another layer, which is, you know, that's why we fall in love with characters um, on television. That's why when a series ends, we mourn it because those characters became so alive in our hearts and our minds and as part of our daily lives that they changed us somehow. Um, and I think that there's an opportunity for AI to be explored in all these ways of relating. Mm. You, you referenced Martin Buber's uh, framework of I, it, and I, thou, and then right. you added a third dimension, which you call I, that, right. which is our relationship to entertainment exactly. in, in your article. Yeah. yeah, and maybe that's not the best word now that I mm -hmm. think about it, but um, but you know my, my ideas on this keep evolving because everything's changing so quickly. But yeah, it's, it's I, it is the framework for, you know, you are, I come to you with a perspective of what are you going to do for me? What's your function, right? What, how are you going to help me in my life? Um, we can do that with a glass, which is, I'm going to use your drink water. We can do that with humans, which is what Martin Buber was talking about, which is a very dead and sad state of relationships. Um, and I do think in some ways technology may move that, may be moving us in that direction because, you know, we see people as a, a number for, are you going to like my post, right? It becomes this very transactional relationship. And then I, thou, um, that Martin Buber speaks about is when you're both just present and the way of relating is just, there's no sense of transaction or gain. It's a, it's a two people in each other's presence. Um, and I'm obviously shorthanding his very beautiful work. And then I, that, which is this new thing I added, was this, I started thinking about entertainment because, well, there is this way we relate to characters, at least fictional characters, um, as entertainment. And there's something, and maybe entertainment is not even the right word because literature, you know, all the great stories we read about the Odyssey, Medea, these fables we grew up with, right? Paul Bunyan, um, Snow White. I mean, it wasn't an I thou relationship because they're not really there to relate with us they're, it's not really an i it i'm not arriving to extract something from them what are you going to do for me you know snow white um but there's something else there that's the way we, we relate to art um and i think there's something that might happen there for ai i hope so in your ted talk and in this article that you reference or it's actually a couple of articles you you make this case for for AI being weird. You say we should not mm. be afraid of AI that is weird. And right. one thing is to add friction to generate personality, which, mm -hmm. if I understood you correctly, you're saying is kind of the ultimate 
differentiator, right, for for our interactions with with assistants. But then you take it a step further and even say, well, writing for AI is like writing an absurdist play. It's like drawing on dialogues from Samuel Beckett. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, what do you mean by that? And give us an example of what that might look like in the context of an, a voice interaction with AI. What is sort of an absurd or the level of absurdity that you're looking for? Well, I think, you know, so one thing I, I, I love about that metaphor to Beckett is that a lot of his plays, you'll notice in the absurd dialogues that there's a lot of echolalia. So it's certain words and fra phrases are being repeated like rats or, you know, the, and, and the characters just almost it's almost like echoes just bouncing off of each other. And I do think that that's one thing, you know, the AI, it's this mimicry aspect of art and conversation that's pretty interesting for AI. Um, I think another thing that makes it absurd is that you have no idea what humans are going to say ever, ever. I mean, there are some guarantees that people will usually say, hello, they'll say, how are you? So you have to script those. But, you know, machines and And algorithms don't do well with unpredictability or context. And so if, I mean, I have no idea what you're going to say if you walk up to Sophia or if you pick up this chatbot app and you, you could say, you know, my shoe is really hurting me today. I mean, you know, th that's what's wonderful about human nature. And I think that what one of the things, that's why it becomes absurd because I have to have this bucket, you know, when I write um, or other writers have to have this bucket for those things that we can't predict. So what should that bucket be? I mean, it could be, I don't understand, you know, but that's pretty generic and it ends the conversation. And so, you know, the art of improv is yes and, right? So let's assume that we're going to go with this crazy thing you said. Um, what's a way that conversation can continue in a nonsensical and nonlinear way? And I think it happens all the time. I think we just don't notice it. I think when we walk around the world and we interact with people, We might be talking about one thing, but this person will suddenly get a look on their face and stare off into space and change the subject. And suddenly you're looking at the thing they're pointing out across the street. And, and so the non-linear aspect of conversation interactions happen all the time. We just don't really notice it. And I think when we sit down to program it, we don't want to program out the randomness. Um, for example, one of my friends, uh, I was having this conversation with her and Uh, and one of my friends said, um, you know, she's Indian and she had some Indian friends and one of them asked her, what caste do you belong to? You know, which is, I guess, and she found she was very uncomfortable with that question. She didn't want to answer it. So she said, Pani Puri, you know, which as some of you know, is a, is a dish. Um, and, you know, I just was so delighted by that because I just thought, what a wonderful way to say, I don't want to answer your question, but to not ignore it either. Um, and just to make up a ridiculous cast that's maybe based on Indian dishes, you know, or a new series of casts. And I think that's the kind of thing we don't want to lose with AI. We don't want to be, turn language and conversations to become so functional and so didactic that we lose the whimsy of human spontaneity and ridiculousness. Um, and another thing I would suggest in that arena of, of absurdity is that sometimes when the best moments are when the AI misunderstood and said something slightly off and yet it still kind of answers your question and I think we shouldn't see those things as as mistakes or errors but I think we should see them as like the delight of humans interacting with machines yeah AI is, in that sense is expanding the playing field and and help us more having more inspired conversations between humans but also between humans and AI right so 
what makes then for a good conversation? Is it is it the the randomness? Is it the unpredictability? Is it what, what in your eyes? What makes for a good conversation between humans? Um, I really think it depends. I think it depends on who those people are and what the functions are. So, uh, you know, I think, for example, I, I thought about this a lot. Like, for example, if you're a therapist, it should be a one-way conversation, right? So if the therapist is talking half the time, um, it's probably not the best conversation. Um, but if it's between equals and friends or, you know, for the most part, I would say a balance of, of listening is very critical but i would also say a balance of showing up is very important and by showing up because i'm a believer in personality i really really am a believer in people knowing themselves and bringing themselves and not being afraid to bring themselves because one thing i do see happening is you know with technology and conversations is that there becomes this sort of median way of interacting you know you'll have this appropriate if you're if you kind of stay within this zone of appropriateness but just enough personality and use the right lingo you're going to get all these likes or forwards or you know whatever that because you know language has become so quantified in its reaction these days with social media so what happens is people stop taking risks because the 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 problem with taking risks is you could you could just get completely trolled um so why not play it safe and kind of you know i mean people will still make plenty of mistakes i think i don't think that's going away anytime soon or say say things that outside of that median, but I do think it, it squashes people's voices. So I think what makes a great conversation is someone showing up. I, I don't enjoy a conversation where I can tell the person's reading me and isn't, you know, and is trying to figure out where I'm coming from and, and, and what I would want to hear and kind of adapts to me too much. I really like it when someone shows up and when I say something, they say something from their bucket of personality and life and experience. And I, and to me, that's what makes a good, a good conversation. Hmm. The, uh, now, uh, Jack Dorsey, the, the Twitter CEO, has recently talked about the health of conversations, obviously under a lot of scrutiny and with techlash and, um, and, and concern over the quality of conversations on Twitter. And he's made this a company-wide effort to track and quantify the health of conversations and use the term or the concept of healthy conversations as a metric, really, so do you think that's a good idea? How do, how do you feel about that? I think that it's a good idea conceptually. I think it's all about the execution because algorithms are very, very bad at uh, doing this. Um, for example, they had algorithms. There's a lot of sentiment analysis algorithms. But the problem is if you don't have, if the creators and the people looking at the data are not language-oriented folks, and I would say creative, kind of human-oriented language folks, um, those those uh, those algorithms will not pick up on any of the nuances and art and language is all about nuance. So for example, you know, the word sick, it could mean you're ill. It could mean that's so badass, that's amazing. Or it could mean like that's disgusting. So how do you create sentiment analysis around sick? Well, then you could start, you know, analyzing it further and then saying, well, if you have these words around it, but you cannot possibly imitate a human when it comes to understanding the nuance of language. And if, if one tweet has... A response of all these things of, of like 90% of it has the word sick in it um, it could actually be great because it could be like this is so sick amazing um, I'm you know or it could be it, this is really you know terrible um, and language is changing very quickly so I still think I, I, I hesitate to to understand what is happening with the algorithms I will say one thing that always always makes for a better conversation this is in my mind 
from personal experience and also from observation is slowing down. Um, I think anytime you add speed to the equation, um, it cheapens everything. It cheapens, I know for me in my life, the more I've slowed down, the richer everything has become from my conversations with people to my writing, to my, the way I read something. Um, so I do think that if, if people in the content sphere and tech want to have better quality conversations, one easy way to do it is to slow things down the way, and I don't know what that looks like for each platform, but make it not so easy to, to do something right away. Make it not so easy to have something get out of control and viral immediately, right? We're addicted to virality, but virality, you know, it's a blessing and a curse because the speed is also not necessarily something that gets us to slow down and think. Um, so that's, you know, one recommendation I would have. Yeah, and there's an interesting counter trend, I guess, to the uh, frenetic pace that we're usually exposed to, whether that is, you know, all the slow movements, slow food, right. slow money and slow conversations or the, the renaissance, or the, the, the second or third spring of podcasts, right? Like this one, where people then uh, take the time to listen to, to a conversation for 30, 45 minutes or long form, other long form formats. So it's an interesting dichotomy, right? On the one hand, uh, we're obsessed with efficiency and maximizing our time. And on the other hand, I mean, we've become better at wasting time than probably ever before, right? Through social media. Yeah, um, I agree. In, 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 in myriad ways. Yeah, so it's very interesting. And I think that what I, and I do see the slow movement, but what's happening is that the slow movement um, is seen as very separate from technology. So they're basically, it's basically an either or binary choice. You either on social media, you get sucked into this world, or you go quote unquote offline, you go dark, you go into the woods. I'm very more interested in seeing an integration of these values together. So for example, um, I have taken a break off social media for two years, but I kind of look occasionally and then I'm very mindful about how I'm feeling when I do it because I'm trying to take a lot of time to think about what it is I want when I go back. Like, what is, what is it that I want? Like, do I want praise? Well, do I? But if I did, what areas would it be in? There's my personal life with my son that I would love to share, but is it my writing? And, you know, so I'm taking a little, I do, I will re-enter, but I want to think a little bit about what it is I want out of it and what it is I want to contribute to it. And I want to do that before I just get caught up in it. Because for a while there, I was just like anyone else caught up in it, posting things, noticing, for example, I noticed that if I had a, you know, a, a big career win, tons and tons of likes. But if I posted this other thing, I get no likes. Now, if I was speeding through life, which I was, um, I would just in probably subconsciously start posting the things that got me more likes because who wants to be on social media and feel bad, right? But what parts of myself am I putting away? Um, and are there other opportunities for those parts of myself to arise if, if those are the only parts of me that most people are seeing? Anyway, this is very getting very philosophical, but I guess my point is I'd be more interested in a lot in the slow movement being integrated into these products. So for example, you know, what if, uh, you know, I don't know, what if Twitter instituted a delay uh, before publishing, right? Where instead of just hitting tweet, you had to, you know, sit on it and you could, maybe you could opt in, you could sit on it for, for half an hour. And if you're really angry and you have a whole bunch of things in your, your little waiting list, you know, it's like a shopping cart in for commerce. Maybe you go back and you delete half those things. I mean, they're just ideas and this is just one and there's many things, but getting things to slow down um, is one way to think about things, hmm. right? 
And, and I think they're thinking about that. I mean, just according yeah. to a conversation with Jack Dorsey that I, I think it was a podcast I listened to on, on Sam Harris's um, podcast, uh, Waking Up. But it's interesting, you said, you know, obviously on social media, you, if you stay within the expected realm of language, right, there are certain responses that you can predict and it's pretty safe and you know you generate yeah. a certain, you know, a right. certain response. Um, and, and then you might just cater to that and right. adjust accordingly and becomes more and more reductionist and narrow. Right. But at the same time, I don't know how you feel about it as a writer, but as a writer myself, and I know this from, from fellow writers as well, there's also always, always this moment when you sit down and you write something that is heartfelt, that is just really, that it's just absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And you have to write, and it's very raw. And I think when you write it, you already realize that people will respond to it mm-hmm. because it's true. Right. Not because it's calculated. Is that, is that an observation you shared? You know what I mean? Like, you, do you have that experience too? I do. And I think that there are some people that maybe social media is much easier for them than it is for me. I, I just know that that external um, reaction is so ingrained as soon as I you know, open the page or, or pick up a, a pen or, you know, or like put my fingers on the keyboard that it takes so much more effort to clear myself of that. And for other people, it might not be as hard. For other people, they might get down and just say, I'm going to write this heartfelt thing, and this one you know, got no reaction, and it, you know, maybe people thought I was weird, but I don't mind. For me, I have a harder time with it, and I, I suspect there's probably others out there too. And I think that we can't underestimate the parts of ourselves we continue to hide that don't get approval. I just feel like we cannot underestimate that. We cannot... We're such social and tribal creatures. I mean, the only reason social media is has the footing it has is because we finally have a way of getting approval in ways some of us you know in ways that we never had before i mean someone made a joke once i heard you know all those likes you're looking for are just you know approval you didn't get from your parents and it was meant as like the sort of offhand snarky joke but there was like this deep painful truth to that that we can find our tribe or our approval no i would correct that we can find different tribes and approval in some ways but i think we have to constantly be mindful and ask ourselves like what parts of us are hiding what what posts do we not want to post and why and it doesn't have to be that social media is necessarily the outlet maybe there's another one maybe more people will start writing and writing poetry writing for themselves but it's just we can't shut that down and we can't have these kinds of thoughtful engagements with ourselves if we're speeding through life i know we i know i never did i I was yeah it was basically check the feed and you know and do this and post this and delete that because no one liked it and i don't want that showing up in my history i mean we're not even thinking about the choices we're making. And the thing with technology is that it goes fast and all they want to do is go faster. Um, and I think we need to think about that. And I think that it shouldn't be this movement where we step outside of technology. It should be something where that value gets integrated into technology. Now, poetry is also a way of slowing down, right? And, and yeah. uh, I think I read in one of your articles that actually the, the number of people reading poetry has gone up, surprisingly. Yes. Yeah. 12% of the American population read poetry. I think that was the number from 2017. Poetry adds mystery and ambiguity and slowness, yes. of course. And so do you write poetry yourself still? Yes, I, yeah, I do. I, I always have since I was young and I, I published um, here and there and... and um, over the years, and right now I'm more seriously uh, committing to it. I'm working on my MFA, so I'm in a, a low residency MFA program, and um, in my second year. Yeah. So. And what other project are you working on uh, right now? Uh, I besides have, writing poetry. Well, that has been really uh, life changing for me to commit to it on a professional and educational level. 
the reason why is because of what you said before. Um, poetry is almost the antithesis of social media. Well, actually, that's not true. It's both of these things are true. One of the reasons people have surmised that poetry reading has gone up is that social media becomes a better platform for um, digesting smaller, you know, denser uh, types of language, right? So obviously, you know, fiction is really hard to convey on social media, but you could write a short poem, a haiku, and, you know, so that sort of short attention span can work for poetry. That's interestingly this plus. On the, on the other side, you know, poetry is the antithesis of things that make sense in our, you know, there's this thing called the poetic rationale or the poetic logic, and then there's things called, you know, rational logic. And poetic logic is different from nonfiction logic. When you, when something reads too linearly in poetry, it doesn't actually succeed in poetic logic. And so you have to bring more of yourself to it to make sense of it. But the other cool thing about poetry is that you have to, sometimes if you blur your eyes, it makes more sense. So you have to get out of that left brain thinking of language. Um, so it's just been amazing. And I think because of that, I realized I'm, it's made me actually more passionate about um, bringing more art into technology, just because I worked in that field for so long and I live in Silicon Valley. Um, so I've been working, some of the projects I've been really excited about are working with some artists, um, some visual artists in, in Europe on different installations and projects they have coming up where they're interested in AI and how to make these artistic comments about it, but they maybe want some scripting with personality or you know development of, of what these machine personalities look like. So that's been really interesting, um, you know. And I've been working on some consulting projects on on different um, you know AI projects in general. So yeah. as a poet living in Silicon Valley, as you just described yourself. Um, how much do you suffer or let me put it that way like how, how, how much appreciation <laughs> for poetry does <laughs> silicon valley have like both as a craft but also as a way of living you've been here for it'll be se seven, seven years, years right right they say that cycles change every seven years and i can definitely feel that cycle ending um i i think that silicon valley is a very tough place for artists and and poets can I just leave it at that? Or you do can, you want more you information? <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can leave it at that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely also, I guess, a city of mixed emotions, particularly in, in light of, of recent changes and just obscene homelessness and social inequality. And then, of right. course, uh, obscene wealth on the other hand. And yet at the same time, right, there's, there's still this amazing fascination, at least that's how I feel about this place and this pull hmm. and, and the possibilities. But, um, I yeah, don't know if I you mean, still that, feel that way as well or whether that, well, that has I, faded. I think that what drew me to Northern California and I moved out here after school on the East coast, um, was that seventies, um, anti-establishment, you know, free love kind of mentality, the music, the art, you know, just that countercultural vibe of Northern California. And I don't see that much anymore. I think, I think that counter-establishment vibe has moved into startups. There's this whole thing about disruption, right? But it's like, I don't know, after a while, my question is, what are we... Like what is the disruption for the point of it doesn't really mean anything. If I just go around overturning your furniture and knocking down your blocks, it's, it's not that interesting. And doing something faster is not always better. Um, so I do think some of that countercultural energy has moved into tech, which is great because, you know, there's a lot of innovation, but I think, 
I do miss, um, I've been talking to a lot of people lately who, <laughs> complaining about Silicon Valley, who have lived here a long time and grew up here. And they feel, a lot of them say, tell me that it's changed a lot. It used to be more, you know, village oriented. People cared about each other. Something happened to someone they cared. And now I think with technology, it's become more moneyed. It's become faster. You know, I mean, it's weird. I, I lived in New York for a long time, but the other day I was driving, I was trying to turn into my gate and someone behind me did not even wait, but like half a second before they were like leaned on the horn. And I was just trying to pull into my driveway, you know? And so, and I was just very shocked because I just thought, I thought, you know, East Coast was supposed to be the, New York was supposed to be the epitome of, you know, rudeness or impatience. But I find a lot more of that out here. Um, and I think that those are energies that are really hard for the artist and, and the poet, like that need space, that need, you know, yeah, we need friction, but we need that kind of um, friendliness, you know, to like let something grow. And I think that's hard here because here it's like, what, it didn't grow by, it's been two weeks, it hasn't grown yet? Where's your play? Where's your... <laughs> where's your hockey stick? Where's your poem? Yeah, where's the, you know, hmm. should I invest in this? You know, it's, it's, everything's very transactional and quick. So those things are really bad for art because art needs time and art needs questions and art needs to know not where it's going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's but maybe called... more artists will move here. I mean, I know that yeah. sounded like a rousing cry to bring artists here. Well, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because exactly at the moment, at a point when you feel like the, the culture is very, very, um, or it's becoming a monoculture and it's very sort of... Yeah monochrome that might precisely be the point when the new subculture emerges i guess yes. that's always been the case here so yes. in, in in some ways actually so. it, it might be quite an interesting time in the next couple yes. of years we'll see a resurgence of of art and in, in, in silicon valley will yet you know or the bay area will, will reinvent itself again i, I mean i'm yeah. still hopeful but uh, yeah I would, we'll love see, that. Yeah. I would love to see that and i love that point of the cycle because i do think that's mm -hmm. true um there are these you know these points of uh, saturation and then something changes. And I do think it's interesting that people in the fine arts world are very interested in AI and doing something with it and making comment about it, but not knowing anything about the field or the technology, there is that distance. I would love to see that distance bridged, yeah. Oh, I wish we had more time. Uh, speaking of speaking of which, uh, for this for this fast moving conversation, this isn't supposed to be a five hour um, podcast. Yeah, it's a five hour podcast. All about slow conversations. That's right. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. In my next life. Um, so just a number of uh, final questions, just, you know, yes and no questions or one word answers, please. Okay. Um, so, uh, what's your opinion of the big bang theory? I have to give a one word answer. Mm-hmm. One sentence is fine. Question mark. <laughs> so I'm asking this because apparently that's one of the most common questions that Siri gets asked. So, uh, what, what is then the most common question that Siri gets asked? Oh, that I probably can't say. Oh, but I will say the thing people say, no, I probably, yeah, I can't talk about that. That's fine. I actually know what it is, but I can't tell you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> um, what, is the, what is a conversation that you regret? Actually, maybe I'll answer mm -hmm. that. Yeah, answer it. You can edit this, right? Okay. Um, I, I shouldn't say this, but it's, I think, at least when I left, it was Call Mom, which is actually... Really lovely that uh -huh. the that the the top thing being said is something that connects you to another human being. Mm -hmm. mm. That's beautiful. I so wish we don't have to edit this out. No, anyway. you could keep that. One. <laughs> I think you could keep that one. Okay. Because I because I say mm -hmm. at the time I left, mm -hmm. so I'm not commenting on it now. So I think that works. Okay. 
And then what is a conversation that you regret not having had? In life? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, there's so many. There's so many. I think there's a reason I really enjoyed writing uh, for AI because I get to have all the conversations that in real life I'm too cowardly to have. And what is the one conversation that you would still like to have? Hmm. I don't know. How to, I don't know that one. That's a tough one. With you know, a certain person or a type of conversation or a certain topic. I would love or to have situation. I would love to have a conversation with some some long ago artists. I would love to be able to span time in conversation. For example, who comes to mind? Uh, Van Gogh. Mm. <laughs> um, there's other ones. I, I um, Camille Claudel. Mm -hmm. Love to talk to her about what it was like to. I think she was brilliant. Um, yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, yeah. By the way, I know this was supposed to be one word answers, but yeah. isn't that an interesting opportunity? I mean, I know that some AI assistants uh, assume human characters say Schwarzenegger, or there's right. like modeled after Schwarzenegger and others. Right. But isn't that a huge opportunity to actually create? AI or digital assistance with the, the character and the life of, say, Ernest Hemingway or Mary Oliver, and then you just interact with them, you converse with them for one week, and then you switch yeah, to absolutely. Camille Claudel. I mean, it's, absolutely. I think that's, wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, it would be. I don't and know I if think, that's already, uh, um, maybe think, that exists already. But. I think that, you know, I think that would be wonderful, and I think that's why AI is very intriguing, because you can transcend a lot of rules, right? You can break a lot of rules that we under, as we understand it. Um, I think the key is like, who is going to invest in making these? Um, but I think it would be wonderful to bring the characters to life. Perfect. Mariana, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure and yes, I really enjoyed this thank conversation. thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm.